Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants stores. Does Russell Westbrook change his persona when off the court? What does it take to do research for a full-length Sports Illustrated article? And is the media piling on Kobe based on their perceived bias against him? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am honored and pleased to bring on Lee Jenkins, the senior writer from Sports Illustrated who covers the NBA for sure. And uh, Lee, great to have you on and uh, I'm excited to talk a little bit about the NBA with you. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate you having me. Longtime fan of yours. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, you know, it's funny. Every once in a while, I run across somebody who has actually seen what I do, and it's, it's, it's still kind of a shock. Uh, I don't know. I have to imagine, are you sort of in the shadows? Like, people may not recognize you right away when you're walking around? Yeah, no, no. No one recognizes me. That would be, a, yeah, it would be interesting. But no, no one. I mean, a little bit, there's some people, in, it's funny, I was just in Cleveland doing a story, and that's the one place where... You know, if I'll say my name or something, people kind of look at me like, oh, were you involved in that whole LeBron James uh, essay? That's the one sort of place where that sometimes happens. But no, I have no <laughs> I have no real TV presence whatsoever. And I think that's where the recognition comes from, from folks. But it is funny, like you'll be at games with, like I kind of hang out sometimes at games with Jay Adande, for instance, or, you know, some of these Rachel Nichols. And it's, it's amazing how many people come up to them, specifically young men approach them you know, who, who may have not seen a whole lot of sunlight um, approach them constantly. Well, yeah, you're describing me. I don't get to see too much sunlight either stuck <laughs> in my cave. Uh, and, and, and I have ta- approached J.A. Donde. Uh, I haven't seen Rachel Nichols yet, but, um, you know, I was just curious because, you know, you, you have a nice picture right there by your byline and people might do that. You know, for me, there's a Chipotle near my house where I keep getting recognized. It's really strange. I don't know why. Chipotle has anything to do with it, but it's it's like a it's a definitely something because it's happened well, that, you know several times. I don't know. That speaks to the uh, the Chipotle NBA overlapping demographic, the millennial. I don't know. So it says something. Absolutely, and you know I tweet about Chipotle sometimes, and so you know that must have to be part of it as well because you have to be worried about you know when you park and you can see people who are kind of walking and you you need to get in front of them before they get in that line. Right, right, right. You know, so it's a real important thing. So that's a real pro tip. That's how I see it. Like, I got to get out of that car. I got to get to the line before before it gets too big. But uh, let's focus on the NBA a little bit because, you know, I'm kind of curious. I was going through a lot of your stuff and trying to catch up. You know, it's hard for me sometimes to read as much as I can as I'm busy doing my stuff. But, 
Like, how, how often do you end up writing an article on the NBA for Sports Illustrated? My ideal would be every other week, but sometimes it works out to be once every three weeks. I try to write for our website as frequently as I can, but the magazine stories are usually, it's usually a two week process about, um, sometimes three, depending on it. So, you know, I mean, the process is kind of three pronged. It's like there's research into the subject, there's reporting around the subject, and then there's the reporting of the subject, like the main interview with the subject. And then I guess it's four-pronged because you have then the writing process. But that's the way I sort of view most of them. And the key part for me is always, it seems like, the time with the subject. You know, it's getting – and this is – it's difficult in this day and age to kind of be able to get a good block of time, a really a substantive conversation with some of these star players. You know, they're all – they're all accessible in some ways. You can always get them after practice or shoot around. But to really have them kind of sit down and lock in and engage with you for a substantial amount of time, you know, there are some hurdles you need to go through for that. And so just the setup of that is sort of um, both the most frustrating and sometimes the most time-consuming part of the job. So what is what does research look like for you when you're preparing to do a piece? Because, you know, these are all long form. I mean, uh, these are like, how many words are you writing for the, in your articles? Yeah, I mean, they're usually they're usually about three thousand words, yeah. um, and they're usually stories that could be much longer. But to me, I'm 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 trying to have a, a fine filter with it and just pick out you know kind of the most relevant aspects of a player's journey. And for me, the research is two pronged. I'm trying to figure out as much as I can about the person, and then as much as I can about the player. And that's why it's it's you know been illuminating seeing your work. You know, it's fun to do this is because I view. I'm still very much learning about basketball. You know, the other part of it I kind of have down, I, I was a feature writer at the New York Times. I've written features about athletes my whole life. But what to me really informs some of these stories is when you're getting in, you're getting in what makes them tick as a person and how that relates to how they are as a player, but also the specifics of their game. And to me, kind of the best stories account for both of those elements, for both of those things. So while I'm doing the research, I'm doing it into – you know, what their background has been like, what their family life was like, how they were raised, what brought them to basketball. But the question I'm often trying to answer is, you know, what distinguishes them as a basketball player and trying to find out if there's anything in their life that sort of made that so. You know, a lot of – there was one thing I love about the NBA is a lot of players, the way they play is indicative of their personality. It's indicative of who they are. The way Russell Westbrook plays is very much who Russell Westbrook is. The way Rajon Rondo plays is very much who he is. It's not true for anybody. It's definitely true for LeBron. It's definitely true for Kobe. Um, so a lot of those – it's true for James Harden for sure. So a lot of these players – and sometimes when it's not true, that's interesting as well, and there's not that overlap. So, you know, I like to figure out kind of what makes them tick in that way, but also what it is about their game, you know, and that's something that I'm still learning because I didn't come up covering the NBA. And that's where looking at a site like yours, you know, reading the guys who write more about the analytics um, has been so instructive for me. Wow. Well, you know, you just mentioned something in there where, you know, if you've watched any of our stuff or followed me on Twitter, I tend to have an issue with Russell Westbrook. And um, I have a hard time sort of putting him in the pantheon of like top point guards for, right. uh, you know, decision making and all those things. But I, I think one of the things that initially that I react negatively to is the sort of uh, ball of rage that he plays with. And people will even say that that's why he is so good. And, and that's that's fine. So my question, though, is, is, you know, my impression of him on the court I, I would have to imagine it's not how he is on, in real life. So I'm wondering, I, I mean, is he walking around like a time bomb when he's not on the court? 
yeah, I think he's really edgy. I think he is. I think he's a really edgy person. And when you, um, you know, I had a pretty long interview with him last year. It was about an hour, um, which for him I think is significant. And yeah, I got the sense that if I asked the wrong question, it's not as though he was going to, you know, get up in my face like I was Stephen Adams or something. Um, but that there was definitely, there's definitely an edge to him. It comes across when you speak to him. I think it comes across in the way he carries himself. Sure, he has to function in society. So, you know, it's it's under wraps to some degree, but you can kind of feel it bubbling under the surface. I mean, there's no way that anybody would describe Russell Westbrook as kind of a, a friendly and um, and cuddly kind of person. Now, I think that is true. I think some people do see that from him, obviously his family, members of the Thunder organization. But I definitely think there's an anger and an edge in him and that he plays with that taps into you know, something deeper inside. And it was actually kind of one of my disappointments in the story is that I couldn't get to that. You know, I couldn't get to that um, as much and kind of the root of where that comes from. And, you know, people go back to always the same reasons. He was under recruited. You know, he lost a friend when he was young. I mean, a lot of these adversities, these obstacles are common and, and a lot of players face them, but different ones sort of internalize them in different ways. You know, I asked Curry about that once about, you know, are you driven by, not being recruited and, and all of that stuff, the scholarships. And he said, no, he said that when he's out there, that that would be a distracting force for him, that that would clutter the mind, that the idea is to keep his mind as clear as possible. So he's really not trying to, according to him, to manufacture fuel. The quest is more to be blank. Whereas I think from Westbrook, there is sort of a goal to, you know, kind of turn this fuel into, into the rage he plays with. Well, you know, you're talking about how, you know, Steph Curry seems like a guy who's really in touch and really knows what he's doing. He's very present on the court and can also communicate that really well. And I've had, you know, enough inter- interactions with NBA players now in the summers and this and that and interviewing them. And, um, you know, all of them are really terrific at communicating and really just getting to the, to the details of what they're doing. And so my, I'm wondering, like, is, this a, is it like a rare sample that I'm getting and that a lot of NBA players simply don't have the ability to kind of really tell you what's either going on in their mind or even what they're doing on the court? Or have you experienced that as a, you know, as a general theme? No, I think they're I think they're fantastic at it. It's one reason I love you know I love what I do. I love getting to to write these stories because, you know, somebody one old sports writer once told me like, ask the pitcher about his curveball. And I think a lot of times it's the best way in is to ask players about their craft and what they do. We all like talking about our craft. You know, I enjoy like this kind of conversation. Even it doesn't happen very often that people ask, well, how do you put a story together? What do you do? I mean, that's that's the easiest thing to talk about. I think it's it's easier probably than talking about who we are is talking about what we do. Mm-hmm. And some people can't describe it. I once had an interview with Tori Hunter, um, you know, set great center fielder, a big baseball player. And this is when I was covering baseball and I asked him how he like robs home runs. And he had a really hard time explaining it. And he had to walk out to the fence in Toronto and he showed me kind of how to do it. And I think with, and I, once he got into it, I think he was having fun with it. And I think a lot of these guys in the NBA I do think they're really good at that, at talking about their craft and at going back to the genesis of it. Like I once talked to Roy Hibbert about verticality and kind of how that started for him, how he kind of became expert at that. And he had a very specific moment. It was a very specific time. He saw Dwight Howard do something in the 2009 finals. And he saw him go up, you know, straight up and jump up. And everybody thought it was a foul. And he said, I can do that. I want to do that. And he 
drew he and Frank Vogel would do drills to kind of replicate that play, and he drew it out for me on a piece of paper. And a lot of guys are like that. You ask Harden about why he gets to the line so much, and he will flash back for you to you know being in high school and his you know he was kind of a, a pudgy kid and admittedly lazy, and his comments him I think hamburger if he got to the line more than six times in a game and because he had such strong hands and wrists he felt as though he could fool people he could bait people into reaching for those hands and wrists and that he would still be able to keep the ball so i love stuff like that because it gets to it kind of ties in elements of their journey of their backstory with what makes them great right now no question i mean i can remember i was interviewing paul george uh, a couple of years ago during shoot around and, um, you know, I'm just sitting there. We're talking about, like, pin downs. And when you come off that pin down, how do you know if you want to shoot it or if you want to drive it and how the defense is reacting? And he was very good at answering it. But I could see as I'm interviewing, I'm kind of staring out of the corner of my eye. Lance Stevenson is staring at me and giving me the, the weirdest expression ever because, I mean, I think right. the point was he's like, what are you doing asking us this? Nobody ever asks us this question. And meanwhile, when I do ask him, they actually do love it. Like, they're into it more than anything. The coaches, too, which I think that's really what's exciting because, yeah, then you can kind of continue to go in there and get, you know, some more interesting stuff rather than, you know, hey, is your, is, is your teammate over there an asshole or not? Yeah, right, exactly. You're sleeping with so-and-so's wife. Yeah, it, it's, you're right. And you can kind of get to that other stuff later on. You know, and a lot of, I feel like, interviews I have, it does. It starts with the basketball. And for me, it's a challenge to ask a cogent question, whereas for you, it wouldn't be. I mean, I hear sometimes the questions like Zach Lowe asks, and they're very technical. They're not questions that I would have ever thought of, but it takes him to great places, obviously, in his pieces. So, no, you're you're exactly right. And like, I, I used to be consumed with this idea of sweet spots. You know, I really want to do a story. It's one of these stories I missed. ESPN Magazine got to it before I did. Rick Buecher did a great piece about it. Not that it's such a novel concept, but just this idea that all these players have a sweet spot, or most of them have a sweet spot. And, like, why was that? Like, why is that your sweet spot? Why was Kevin Garnett at the elbow so good? Why does KD love the top, that top of the circle shot? You know, when everything tells you that that wouldn't be probably his most efficient shot. But he loves that shot. For him, it's, you know, it's a highly efficient shot. I, I don't know. Maybe stats score will pr- prove me mistaken, but it seems that way. So I kind of, I kind of like asking guys that sometimes. And a lot of times the answer is nothing. It's, I don't know, or whatever. But sometimes there's a really... There's a really good answer that's kind of illustrative of a turning point in their career, a time where they found this is something for me. Like, like Tyson Chandler, for instance. I mean, I once asked him, because when Tyson Chandler was growing up, I watched him in high school a few times. He's from Compton Dominguez, and he would play on the perimeter. That's all he did. He played on the perimeter. He shot threes. He was like a guard almost, seven-foot guard. I mean, it was a spectacle. And kind of asking him, well, why do you – when did it happen that you only dunked, basically, that you never took a shot from more than two feet from the rim? And again, he flashed back to a specific game, a preseason game in New Orleans, where he thought, I shot it pretty well today. Um, I shot it pretty well. And he went back and looked at the box score, and he was like, you know, three for eight. And he said, you know, that's not good enough. I, I can't do this. That moment when the guys realized, this is my limitation, and I need to commit to this part of my game. And again, and it probably helped turn his career around. Wow. Well, it's funny because I, I always wanted to say, my instinct is to say, like, you know, Tyson Chandler was, if that's the case and he had that ability, he was probably 10 years too early coming in the league because. Well, that's true, yeah. 
you know, now they probably would like that and have him space. Because I remember I've seen him a couple times hitting elbow jumpers in the last couple of seasons, and I've been freaking out about it. And then, like, on Twitter, and people will actually come back to me and say, no, like, he can actually do that. But it just, it just looks so out of place in the, in the context of his career now. Um, right. You know, that's actually an interesting point that I've talked a lot about a lot is that, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot what team you end up on. And, you know, certain players, I think, have obviously benefited greatly from the situation. Like Draymond Green might never have gotten to the position he was in if he wasn't exactly at the right place at the right time. And it's like, I wonder how many players in the league throughout the whole, you know, history of the league never got that quite that right fit. I think that's right, right? Like if Curry, if Curry didn't come off all those screens and attract two guys and then hit Green and allow him to kind of play that point forward role, and there's no one like Curry, you know, really, right? What would happen to Draymond Green? I think that's right. I think so much of this is is fit, and that's why, you know, something I think about too is, you know, do are are they able to kind of appreciate some of those fits and some of those cultures and knowing kind of how dangerous? I think it's interesting prism to look at free agency through and you know when you have that kind of fit are they able to sort of do are you guys able to really um evaluate kind of how important that culture's been in their own in their own growth um i think that's an interesting a really interesting point because i'm sure you're right i'm sure there are a lot of players around the league who would do great in a certain system and, and wouldn't in another i mean Oh, Jeremy, yeah. Lynch, I suppose. Jeremy Lynch, great example. I mean, I, I use Steve Kerr uh, as a great example because he was going to be out of the league, but he managed to get to the Bulls. Right. In Orlando, right? Uh, yeah, he was at the Orlando and Cleveland and, you know, really wasn't doing well. Uh, but he gets to the Bulls and, you know, he ends up hitting those great shots and becomes, you know, a champion. Then he gets to the Spurs, doesn't play a lot in the Spurs, but he has a couple of, you know, big moments for them. And we all, and you know what, that propels him to where he is now, where if he had played three or four years in the league, didn't really have an impact. Like, is he a commentator? Is he a GM? Is he a coach? Like, I, I don't know. Um, or is he back to San Diego surfing? I mean, it, it could be. Or in at Arizona or something. Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. His life probably takes a totally different, right. different direction. And by the way, Steph Curry, like, probably doesn't become MVP if Mark Jackson is still coaching. Right, because the, the and we've done a breakdown between comparing what the offenses were under Jackson under under Kerr, and clearly Kerr unleashed you know what his his goodness in, and what he can do so well. Where you know, and by the way, it's not a, even a criticism of Mark Jackson. I, I I don't know how many coaches would really uh, have the confidence or, and the vision to open it up like Kerr did. Uh, it was a weird confluence of events, right? And you have guys like Jamon Green and guys like Clay Thompson, so. You know, you look back at it, and I kind of, you know, the next time I try and talk to any of those guys, I just I, I want to ask them. I'm like, do you guys realize how amazing this really is? I have to imagine a guy like Steve Kerr probably does understand that and does let him know. But this has got to be one of the few and far between moments where you know you have a team like that where they actually like each other, right? I mean, have you spent any time around the Warriors this year? Yeah, a lot of time. I mean, not this year, but a lot of time last spring. And okay, and they do, and they've created. I mean, Kerr created a. He created a whole different culture there, and it is – I mean, I'm curious what your thoughts are on how – when you say open it up, I mean, do you just mean by playing small and spreading the floor and all those things? Because I think, you know, there – you know, when you said earlier that Curry's very present, you know, and I think that that's a lot of this, you know, theme there is, is mindfulness, and, you know, everything there is is happy. You know, it's just – I just did this story about LeBron for this week's magazine, and a lot of it was – 
It's about rage. It's about playing angry. And, um, you know, and I think that worked a lot for the Heat. I think after his first run, he said, well, I don't want to be the villain anymore. I'm not going to play angry anymore. And he made it, made it, might have made a subtle adjustment there. But that team in general, you know, they played with their teeth clenched a little bit. That's what the Heat does. And it worked for them. I think it can still work. But you have a team like the Warriors that does it completely opposite way it's it's more of a of a joyful peaceful approach um and it's worked for them and when you go up there you you get that you just get that vibe you get that sense from the way their coaches are um you know it's a little more it's a more california a little more hippy dippy they got music playing in the in the gym it's very it reminds you of pete carroll kind of in usc and they're just they're two kind of different ways to approach program building i suppose oh yeah like yeah i actually i got to spend three days at practice as well uh you know uh, with warriors during training camp and i got to hang out with the coaches it was i mean it was one uh, it will you know aside from marriage and kids and th- those kind of things <laughs> this is one of the highlights you know primarily because at, i mean they were so welcoming and not threatened by other people and you know whether you want to treat me as a media or a coach whatever but like i got to go on the floor i was we, me and uh, you know Ron Adams were giggling about like things I was suggesting about what we you could do for defense, uh, you know, and then like even even um, uh, uh, Jim Barnett, their color commentator, right, for all these years, like we were on the court and he was showing me moves that he used to do when he was in the NBA, and then like next thing you know, Jerry West comes out and takes the ball, and like I'm guarding him, and he's showing me footwork <laughs> for like 20 minutes on the court. I, I, it was like what other NBA team like would that ever happen with? Especially because I think it's Kerr and, and their leadership. But they, yeah, and there are you know you're right. There's a looseness, um, a looseness to them that I think engenders genders positive feelings from people like us, from fans. It comes across I think in the way they play, and I think you're right. I think a lot of this kind of tight football mentality that's kind of governed some of the teams. I think it's kind of come back to haunt them. Bit. I, I don't I don't think it necessarily helps them. But I you know, one thing I'll say is from covering other sports, the NBA is still the best with all this stuff. You know, you still have more of those moments. I had last year I did a story with it was with Dwight and down in Houston and you know, I had Elijah Wan like backing me down, like showing me a post move. And I was like, <laughs> this is just this is just ridiculous. You know, this is such a great life. Um and you know, the the Lakers are like that to this day. I mean, it's all so you know, you go in there, you don't feel like you're in you know, the Kremlin, like it would be if you were covering a Patriots practice or something. It's, oh, really? It's all, it's very open and they're very, it's all very accommodating and accessible. And I feel like a lot of the NBA is still that way. I don't know if that's the remnants of the eighties, but I'm grateful for it because from somebody, for somebody who's covers it and is trying to get a little bit of that feel, a little bit of that inside um, access to the fans. I think a lot of NBA teams do make that possible. Well, you know, it's funny that you bring up the Lakers because, you know, certainly uh, my impression of what the Lakers locker room would be or that that environment would be a little bit walking on eggshells. Everyone's a little bit, you know, I, I mean, I'm glad to hear that maybe that doesn't feel that way to you. Um, but when, you know, the elephant in the room here we were talking about was with Kobe and what's happening with him. And, you know, there's a big debate going on about how the media has been treating him. You know, I think Kevin Durant was, was going off on yeah. it, you know, yesterday. And, you know, you cover Kobe for all these years. Yeah. Um, you know, what's your take on that? Well, I think, you know, I think KD in this case is um, conflating media and social media and the chatter he hears on Twitter um, and every kind of everything that's in his vicinity. And I think that's, you know, I get it. Maybe that is media now. Maybe media is every voice, but it's 
it's hard to typecast. I think mainstream media I think has actually been pretty good to Kobe Bryant. I think there's been a lot of burnishing of his legend. Um, and, you know, I'm one of those people who I love writing about that stuff. I love sitting down with Kobe and, and talking about everything he's seen. And, and when you sit and talk with him, his, his voice is so powerful um, and so insightful mm-hmm. that you can't help just let it run. And he does a lot of his own legacy burnishing. So I don't necessarily know that the media has been tough on Kobe. I think that you have, you know, when you're on Twitter, there's definitely, he's one of these polarizing figures. Um, and especially now with that, you know, with as much emphasis as there is on analytics and people seeing that there are a lot of shortcomings to Kobe's game and a lot of things that you can kind of triggers debate. And I think that there, there are two sides to to this story of, you know, how much should we be saluting this guy and giving more tributes and talking about the past or how much we worried about the damage um, that sort of this kind of construct does to the next generation of Lakers. Because listen, this organization, and when I was talking about the openness, in some ways it is about Kobe because I do find him open in certain ways, but it's also organizationally they're, they're open. Um, but it's, you know, it's, been, it's put them in a really awkward position for three years where they didn't want to kind of cast a legend aside. Um, but they've also, I think, really jeopardized their own ability to move forward. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And I think, do you think it's fair to, you know, perhaps personally, I mean, you can't take out the, your, your person and your personality as a writer. You're, you're a human being as a journalist. Is it fair to allow maybe off-court stuff to inform your opinion and then perhaps inform your analysis of a player? Um, when, when you're referring to off-court, are you referring to him specifically? Well, I mean, I, I used to criticize Allen Iverson in, in my younger years, um, you know, for a lot of the stuff that he did that was off the court, you know, and even going back into college or before college. And, um, and that always sort of connected with me on the court, which probably was self-righteous and not fair for him. Uh, but, you know, Kobe, we could bring that up. I mean, there certainly are things that have gone on and, you know, it came up on Twitter, you know, that, that perhaps once the, those things started came out in the press, that turned the press, you know, uh, against him uh, for that, for off the court stuff. And then as a result, they were, you know, the, these guys who kept trying to hate on him, I suppose would be Do the word. Do you mean word. Colorado or are you saying more recently? No, I, I guess Colorado is what I'm, is, is, uh, the, is the genesis yeah, of this. I, you know, to me, off court, on court, I, most of the time, I feel like off court affects on court. I mean, to me, part of Iverson's, like when you talk about Iverson, I never covered him, but just that he kind of kept these crazy hours and he had this, you know, bizarre lifestyle and everything, and that he played the way he played. It was all, it all kind of fits together. You know, I don't think there's that much separation. And usually it's, you know, basketball is a part of these guys' lives and their off court existence is part of their lives. And so it all kind of, creates a rich a rich life um so to me it's all you know most of that stuff all sort of dovetails together um i think colorado's with kobe was was really an an interesting moment because before that he didn't really have this black mamba villain you know wearing the black hat kind of um (laughs) persona i think that in many ways came after that and you know i'm just speculating here but I, i think in some ways it was probably born out of necessity that that's the way he had to go. Um, and I don't know, maybe it fit him better. Maybe it fit him worse. When I think of Kobe before Colorado, he was still he was still crazy. I mean, he was still a taskmaster and a worker and all of those things. 
you know, while the other guys are doing the Macarena on the plane, he's watching tape of Jordan. That was actually <laughs> Del Harris. But, you know, but I, so I don't really know if he changed necessarily post-Colorado, but I definitely think elements of the persona and how we viewed him did. I, I don't really feel like he was ever pitted against the media. He was really rough to interview and to talk to for a while, um, for a long while, post-Colorado, probably up until maybe 2010. And in the last four years, probably, I don't think you can find a better interview in sports. I don't know you can find a better interview anywhere. I mean, I, see, he's at the point now, I've interviewed him a couple times the last few years, like longer interviews. I feel like I can just press record on the tape recorder and walk out of the room and like <laughs> go get lunch and come back. I mean, he is so great to talk to. He's in such a reflective mode. Um, his storytelling, his recall, of specific anecdotes. Um, it's just Peyton Manning's the only person I could compare him to as far as an ability to reflect on his own life um, right now than Kobe. And I think it's a treat. I think it's a treat for fans. Like you take a guy like KG, who to me is kind of frustrating because I think there's so much that KG could share and so many interesting stories and things he's seen. But for whatever reason, he doesn't want to do it. And that's fine. It's his prerogative. It's, it's, it, they're his stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kobe has kind of taken it upon himself that he wants to be a storyteller. It's what he wants to do as he moves forward in his life. Um, and I think it's been it's been kind of fun to, to listen to. So I don't really feel like there's a media Kobe Bryant um, war. And I think if you watched him in these press conference settings, I think KD would probably agree. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's funny because it's like, you know, I, I've criticized Kobe his whole career. I'm like a – the beauty of – I get to sit in the ivory tower where everybody that I've ever coached is the best, the most selfless team teammate of all time, right? And they never talk back to me and I would never, you know, whatever – um, and, you know, and I've done the Michael Jordan Kobe comparisons, how they attacked in the triangle offense and why I, I you know, I showed Kobe. I mean, Michael was was better at it, you know, from right. a team standpoint. And, you know, all the Kobe fans would scream at me and yell at me all these all these years. But it's funny because when you looked at him on Twitter and you kind of see him, you know, in the last couple of years, like you're saying, he, there, what's emerging to me a little bit is like he might be a little bit of a, of a nutty guy, like kind of a funny off the cuff and I was like, oh, is he, he's am I going to have to like Kobe now? Because, you know, I even asked him on Twitter once because I was like, is it, is it really Kobe writing these funny little tweets? And he actually responded. He was like, yeah, it is me. And I was like, oh, you know. So it's a really interesting uh, uh, conflict for me because I was like, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not supposed to, like, I don't, I built this up in my mind and here's this real human. And then you read your articles and it's like, oh, my goodness. Here's a guy who, you know, has a, 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 a huge breadth of, of personality uh well let me ask you this how do you they're feel all like that i mean they're all people it's like everybody's got you know there's good there's bad it's like there's all it's a whole as lamar odin might say there's a whole big pot of gumbo you know and it's it's there are things about them that are probably less than ideal as far as a teammate um as far as a basketball player but there's also yeah i mean there's also been just incredible i just feel like there's been incredible insight shared from him and i also think about just just his place within the league and how he's just driven conversation. I mean, the Spurs can be the Spurs and Tim Duncan doesn't have to say anything. And, you know, everybody can kind of be quiet there because they have Kobe Bryant every day to, you know, to feed this maw, you know, this media <laughs> maw and the talk radio. And I mean, people need something. And those guys are able to kind of be on the down low all the time because people like Kobe are kind of willing to be stars. They're willing to step up and kind of be the face of the league. 
And the NBA needs that. And the NBA in many ways is in his debt. I mean, I, I can't believe, I mean, these fans, these casual fans, they're, they love Kobe so much. And when you kind of look at the numbers of this stuff, it's pretty remarkable. The Lakers are still the biggest road draw. Mm-hmm. percentage-wise in the NBA, 2-14. and 14. It's remarkable, more than the Warriors. And you look at some of these metrics that gauge their popularity, and I think it's because it's not because of people like like you or people who maybe break the game down. It's just people like watching the guy make shots. You know, I, I didn't when I didn't cover the NBA in the mid-2000s, I was a baseball writer, I just loved watching him because he just he did something every night that I felt like I'd never see, seen before or see again. He just made crazy shots. He was really – he was just such an entertaining shot maker. And I think for a lot of the viewing public that doesn't know the game as well as you do, that's just watching for the fun of it, it was just something to see. Well, let me ask you this. Um, do you get the same feeling watching uh, Steph Curry play now? Yeah, I do. I do. There was just so- – there was something about Kobe. It was just – and I do. I mean, the degree of difficulty with some of Steph's shots, it's the, it, it is sort of the same way. I'll, I'll be interested, though, because the persona kind of went with it. There was a persona plus a shot making. There was sort of a feeling of volatility around him. Um, and the polarizing name, I think, makes them, can make them really interesting. You know, Steph Curry is incredible. He's great. Is he wild? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure yet. I, he, there's there's time for him to go. And I don't know that he necessarily would want to be interesting or anybody would want to be interesting in that way. Like LeBron, to me, is very interesting. Um, but again, that comes partly from being polarizing in some ways and kind of going through these these wild cycles, these ups and downs. I hate that word narrative. Like Kobe and LeBron go through these constant narratives. It always swings. It always turns. It's like, you don't like where they are? Wait a month. It'll be something different. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm, what I'm curious about with like somebody like Curry. Will he have those, or will he just continue unabated to the summit? Um, and maybe that's maybe that's kind of more his more his destiny or his arc. But to me, those narratives are, if nothing else, interesting. Well, you know, for me, it's like there's nothing I like better to turn on the TV to watch the Warriors play to to watch Steph. And when I watched Art. Kobe being in LA those years. You know, the, the, it, it was the bad shot. He was the king of the bad shot right. maker. And, you know, I guess what I would end up doing is, you know, if I were on, like, I guess I put myself, what if I was a teammate of his? And I had to sit there and I'm running offense and then there he breaks it off and t- does a double pump hanging right. off the glass right. in three guys' face and he makes it, right? And then I'm playing with Steph who, like, there's a difference, right? I mean, he is, is, it's coming out of the offense and out of the flow, and they all seem to want him to do that, and they all want Clay Thompson to have a 37-point quarter. Um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic because, in theory, the result is are, are the same. They're there, but it, the method is so different, and I wonder if, um, if that is one of the issues with why he became so polarizing is not only this, his, his demeanor, but it's like the, the, like, like the shots he took – I have to imagine a lot of people were like, oh, you know, that, those are just, you know. And, and I think the point we're seeing is here we are in his last season and he hasn't adjusted, right? He's still trying right. to take a lot of those shots. Do right, you think right. that, let me ask you this, do you think that LeBron would be that way in a few more years? Yeah. Is he going to do that or is he going to adjust? I've thought about this a lot because I was around them for a while last week. And I actually think that part of what LeBron is doing right now, I think is motivated by, and he didn't say this, I'm just, I'm reading into it. But I think he envisions maybe an opportunity to pick off a title. I think, I think the idea is he wants to pick off a title in the next two years, obviously. 
um, while he's kind of still in, in his prime. But I, I can foresee a day, 35, 36, something like that, where he's able to pick off one more where Irving and Love are the guys. And LeBron's getting, I don't know, maybe 16, 10, 8, something like that, you know, where he's, where he's a third option. I think it is po- it's way more possible for him. It's not the way Kobe was wired. We mm-hmm. all knew this was going to be a really awkward exit. And it's been. It's lived down to expectations. So I think everybody knew that he was not – Chris Ballard had a great line in his um, – he wrote the story when the Lakers beat the Magic in 09 for the magazine, the cover story, to win the championship. And he asked Kobe about someday being the third option for a team, if he could ease into that. And, he had a great description of the look Kobe gave, which was essentially looking at him like he had six heads, like that's not <laughs> going to happen. But it happens, and he wasn't able to do it. He's not wired that way. You look at Dirk, he's been able to age more gracefully. KG, they found a way to contribute, to make an impact without being who they were. Kobe couldn't do it. It wasn't the way he was wired. It's probably why he was able to do those things he did earlier in his career. It's, it's the wiring. And... I do think LeBron at heart is more of a sharer. I think Kobe's a guy who has to shine. It's more of an individual pursuit for Kobe. He's more of a loner off the court, on the court. LeBron likes a group. Um, I, I do. I think he's going to age way more gracefully. Now, the body, I don't know. Because a body like that, you never know if he'll lose some explosiveness. But I do foresee him kind of catching it in the post, surveying, picking out Kevin Love, picking out Irving. And potentially that being a good team for a long, a long period of time, even when he's not carrying the mantle. Uh, I, I, I agree. I think that LeBron has gotten criticized in the past for being too uh, selfless and passing up shots, to, you know, to find the best shot. Uh, I, I think maybe he's uh, changed a little bit. I mean, we saw that in the finals this past year where, um, you know, and we and we and maybe we have a minute to talk about that as far as yeah, it's actually Kobe would have enjoyed that. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I had a big issue with that because, you know, I, I was convinced that they had just played, let the offense work a little bit more. He would, they would have been, they would, my, my take on it was they're going to lose that series 10 out of 10 times playing that way when they ISO like that, even though they had a little bit of lead in the beginning. Um, but if they at least give themselves a chance. So, but here's what I want to ask, because there's two interesting things happening right now. Um, one that's more pressing is OKC and Donovan. Uh, I'm watching these games, and every game that goes by, it looks like he has less and less effect on the game. And we, I, there was a thing about somebody had said that you know Russ was just saying f that uh, out of a timeout and didn't run the play that he drew up. Uh, it happened again the other night where there's no way you'll ever convince me that what Ru- the shot Russ took was the play they called and anything near what they wanted. So what do you do? You have any insight into that and what's happening with Donovan? And, okay, so I haven't been there and I haven't watched him as much as as I should. Um, is it different? Does, did, how different do they look than they did with, with Brooks? Same. Just tons of ISO. And- yeah, I mean, their offense doesn't like, I mean, every once in a while, they uncork a little bit of a dribble pitch or handoff stuff, where which is the Donovan signature. But most of it, again, is, is Russ making a pass and then backing up to the half court and holding his hand up and waiting for it, which is exactly what he's been doing all those years, which also might, maybe we can't fault Scott Brooks. Maybe it's the thing where the players are just going to do what they do. They're awesome. And uh, they might end up losing in the second round because of that. Or maybe they've been allowed to do that. And that's been ingrained with them there so long. They only played one way, one coach, and they're more resistant to the changes. But I'll tell you, I mean, watching I watch a fair amount of like SEC basketball and I'm mean, going to watch Florida a lot. I never was overwhelmed by them schematically or 
you know, that impressed by kind of the stuff they ran. I mean, I don't know if you were, but I never felt like their offense was so dynamic, especially the last few years. I mean, they, they would play with these combo guards and just let them kind of dribble around and take a lot of tough shots. I, I mean, I did do a breakdown of Donovan's offense before the season started, and you know, there was a lot of goodness in there. There's a lot of, and primarily it was the point guard, like there was going to be action for him where he's going to have to cut away in the weak side and then come back around. And like when you get Russ doing that, like he would be unstoppable and that seems to have gone away, unfortunately. Uh, again, it never really, really took, you know. And, and we hear guys like Haralabob, uh, you know, talking about yeah. game decisions and, I, I and, and lineup management. You know, the funny thing with me is I end up getting really granular when I'm looking at this. So I, I miss a lot of the coaching nuance because I'm not watching the entire game and aware of, like, timeouts and, and substitution patterns, right? So, but, but Bob certainly is, and, and like, he is definitely critical. Well, uh, in the past, if you've been around, has that been a sense with Brooks and with the team? Like, I know you've been around that version of OKC. Was there this notion of like, you know, not getting the kind of respect or listening to him that they, he should have? I don't, I don't know that they weren't listening to him. I think that they were a very, I, I got the sense they were very player first. And it was very much about, always about player development and always about, you know, I felt like Russ and, and KD in the end were able to felt like Scott was kind of in some ways trying to help them grow and let them kind of giving them, you know, a lot of the power. Um, it, it's not a Tom Thibodeau, Stan Van Gundy type of, of organization. Um, they're empowering their players. And in some senses, I, they probably were. I mean, it might be it's a blessing to have two transcendent talents like that. But if there is a curse there, it may be that they never really played together, that they was always sort of these two guys and they didn't kind of mix in the group. And listen, the stakes for them are obviously really high. And if that's, if that's what's happening, if this thing is kind of, if it's not going to work, I mean, you just wonder what that means, like what Durant is thinking as he's kind of watching this unfold. And if, you know, I think people always get it wrong with those two guys. They're perfectly friendly. They have a great relationship. It, that, that's not it. It's more about they kind of get to a point where they wonder, where KD wonders, hey, I love you. It's been great, but it may not work. You know, we've kind of seen it through mm-hmm. and we've kind of taken it. You know, we've seen it through its course and we'll always be buddies. I, I never think it's personal. Like with those two guys, it's never going to, it would never be personal. It would be this idea where they'd look at each other and say, hey, we gave it our best shot and it just didn't happen. And can that happen? I, th- I think it could, and I think that in that way, this hire was really critical for them. You know, they needed they needed to find their Steve Kerr. Mm-hmm. And I think if nothing else, through the first couple months, we can maybe say they didn't find their Steve Kerr. I mean, if that's if what I'm kind of gleaning from what you're saying is correct. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's it's not Steve Kerr because when Steve Kerr came in, you know, you, the, the, the yeah, the results were immediate, and you could see, you know, and and they're not, you know, they're they're doing okay. Uh, but no one is is sort of looking at this and going, they're gonna they're gonna get to the NBA Finals the way they're playing now. Um, in fact, I mean, I don't know if anyone's gonna get there besides the Warriors in the West because it's just you know it, it seems inevitable at this point. I don't think I've seen a better team, uh, you know, for the first twenty games. Uh, now has LeBron and uh, Coach Blatt repaired whatever you know they had last year because it seemed like it was pretty bad, you know, for the for the most part yeah. last year. You know, I don't know if they've repaired it. I, I think, I mean, you know, and I don't know what there was to repair. I don't know. I don't necessarily that LeBron will ever have a relationship with a coach where they are, you know, necessarily where it's like a mentor and they're in lockstep. 
Look at the coaches he's had. Paul Silas, he had Mike Brown, he had Spo, who was, I think, incredible for his career. Um, and then he had, he now has David Blatt. I think, I think the relationship's fine. I, I don't even know how, how important it is. You know, I think that the idea is that relationship Blatt has, I think, is more important with the other members of that roster. And that's why the respect from LeBron is important because he needs to be able to command respect you know, from some of the lesser players on that team. And I think in that way, you're seeing less of those little tweaks in the media. You know, you're seeing a little bit more public support for Blatt. Um, you know, you can argue with how much of that is, is true, how much of that is, is masking something deeper on the sur- under the surface. You know, I don't know, but I do think with LeBron, the public is important. You know, what he says in the media is important because – and I think with Kevin Love, he's made a point this year. He's the focal point of the offense. We're riding his coattails. He's probably overstating that, but I do think it's kind of, I think it's lifted Love in some way. I think there's definitely, between the two of them, um, I sense a greater synergy. To me, there will be, it'll be interesting though when Irving comes back mm-hmm. and just how that affects things there. Um, because I still think that could be a really, really good team. Um, going into the second half of the season. I mean, they could go on a run, maybe not like the Warriors have been on, but they're capable of blitzing through a month like February, um, you know, in their road to the finals right now. I mean, is there anybody who looks like they're going to challenge them right now in the East? I mean, is anybody emerging? Oh, in the East? No. I mean, the Bulls have really I, – I've I, I taken a dive on that – a bath on that one because I kept saying they, these these guys have all the pieces to challenge. Another coach who is having some struggles, uh, you yeah, know, kind of getting getting what they want. They're not really running their offense, their special stuff either uh, as much. And, uh, you know, and again, uh, but I, I think you're right. And it's also Shumpert, by the way. I feel like he doesn't get enough yeah. uh, uh, credit oh, because right. – what they're what they're lacking as well is that real you know good perimeter defender and I think that he is that guy when he's healthy. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's going to be a matter of course. We're going to probably have a rematch, and we, if we we only uh, be so lucky to have a full team on Cleveland side because yeah. you know that would then give us you know a rematch. It would give us even you know a somewhat even game. Uh, that I think that'd be an amazing series. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. LeBron under the radar a little bit, like Cleveland under the radar this season. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic to me because so much of – you go back two years ago, and so much was about pacing, and we're going to stay fresh. This was the Spurs – you know, this was the Spurs effect. Everybody wanted to rest and be fresh for the playoffs, and now it feels like we're sitting here. It's December 1st, and the Cavs and Warriors seem like they are gunning. I mean, the Warriors are – they're not giving up any of these games. LeBron's calling team meetings after three-game winning streaks. Mm-hmm. It's like they are – these two teams seem like they are going full throttle on December 1st, I don't know what way is right or what way is wrong. I don't know how much of it is them watching the other. You know, I'm not, I'm not really sure of the motivation of this um, or how it's all going to look in April, if we're going to look back and say, yeah, that was wise to do it that way. Um, but it definitely feels like there's more of an urgency in this regular season early on than there has been the past couple. Oh, it's it's Rocky three happening right now. We got Clubber Lang and um, and Rocky training for this, and so uh, for, without question, uh, yeah, it, it feels that way. And also, the Warriors are not going to do this thing where, to me, it doesn't look like that where they're going to be like, ah, we're gonna we're gonna take a dive on a couple games for the rest or yeah. whatever. No, these, these guys are pushing it. And there's been three or four games they could have been like, eh, you know what? That's cool. Uh, good, you know, we, we we had a streak, and no, they're they're like cold blooded. Um, and it's been, it's been, like wrecked. I mean, he's like, you know, I, I don't foresee maybe when Irving comes back, he'll change his tune a little bit. But like he told me the story. I led my 
piece with this week for SI, like, where he got back from Detroit one night. It's like late, three in the morning, and he just watches the Warriors. Just turns on the Warriors game, you know. I mean, kind of watches it as he goes to sleep. It's like there's a, I don't know. There's just it's something different. I mean, this is not. There's no pacing going on right now, and I don't know if they'll have to kind of these teams have to dial this back. January, February, we may see like a, a reaction as we head forward in the second half. Um, but for right now, it's it's kind of fun to watch because this is usually such a, you know, kind of a slow time in the NBA. It doesn't feel that way. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. And as much as I hope we can get a rematch uh, of the Warriors and the Cavaliers, I hope we can get a rematch as well and, uh, oh, and do this again. Time. <laughs> that was fun. You got it. Well, everybody, check out Lee Jenkins at Sports Illustrated. You can just, you know, pick up the actual ma- – they still print a magazine. It's exciting, right? They actually have a paper thing, right? That's what you want to get. Yeah, that's the real stuff. All right. I mean, yeah, I, I remember paper. faces in the crowd and the whole thing. I mean, I, you know, that, that's right. awesome. Get your sneaker phone and the whole thing. I'll be good. Oh, awesome. So, uh, again, thanks for coming on. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Lee? I'm all in, Nick. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win twenty-five grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participating stores.